News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. So do you have a video doorbell? Many people, many households do. It feels like they're on sale all the time. People are using them more and more. You're seeing those videos show up on social media. There's a downside to this too. We're going to talk about that now with the help of our contributor, Raji Sohal. Good morning, Raji. Hey, Simi. I feel like we hear so many stories these days about uh, this company or that corporation having access to all our information without knowing it. People sometimes assume, hey, they have to sign a big legal waiver before something like that happens. But that's not always the case. And I would say, in fact, most cases, it's not the case. Uh, There's this big story out in the U.S. today about doorbell privacy because millions of people have this video system uh, in it's locked into the doorbell for security. So you always know who's out there. I don't have one of these. My parents have... uh, I think always had one of them. And I've always found it really convenient uh, because even if there is no one out there, like uh, if you're not using it for the purpose of uh, checking uh, to see who the person is at the door that's just rang, you can also just activate it and and on theirs, you can just look outside and just uh, see even to the street. Well, it turns out that Amazon gave their ring doorbell videos that they had collected from customers without their knowledge to the U.S. police in uh, at least 11 cases. Now they're saying, oh, we're not going to share customer information without consent, a warrant, or an emergency. But they weren't supposed to to begin with. They were were never supposed to do it to begin with, but now it shows up that they've done it a dozen times, and now they're saying they still won't do it. But that is so disturbing when I read this story. It's so disturbing to think that this is your footage, right? Your house, your camera, and they gave it to police without even asking or telling you. Yeah, and it doesn't get more personal than where you live. That's what infuriated me about this story. Now, I often see memes joking about how Alexa is listening in on your home and your private thoughts and passing that information uh, (laughs) on Simi. And people say like Big Brother is everywhere. You can't do anything. But people tend to think like, hey, my home is safe. And certainly the footage from my house would not be given to police without my consent. I I was livid when I read this story because people are not aware that corporations uh, do not always operate in their best interest. And they could be collecting tons of information about you, your life, your family, your preferences, and selling that without you knowing it, or in this case, giving it to the police. And you don't know what the reason is that they're giving it to the police for uh, either. So I, yeah. I just found this whole story really sketchy. It's so sketchy and so disturbing. And but here's the thing that gets me, Raji. Why is it that we are always surprised when this happens? So uh, for me, and maybe it's just because I've been in this business for too long, so I'm super cynical about this, but I've always assumed this kind of thing would happen, right? It's one of the reasons why I don't want one of them and I don't want the Alexa and I don't want all that because just I assume that if the worst can happen, it's going to happen. But it just does feel like that overall people are shocked that what they said they weren't going to do this and they did it. Well, of course they did it. 
Okay, so I'm in a slightly different camp than you in that I was shocked. <laughs> and it's not like I, I trust the corporation to do what's in my best interest whatsoever. It's just that they're not using it because of only, for example, a targeted, say, uh, say there was a, a robber that came to the door and they're just looking for footage of that. No, uh, it was used, for example, in the BLM protests. And you don't know what your footage, what footage was used or how it was used or what it was used to argue or prove or not prove. Um, so I just feel like that is such a violation when it's footage from your home, from your house, just outside your house. And that to me, yeah, that's a little bit of a shocker. Yeah, I, I'm. it's a shock that they would actually do this. I'm not surprised. The cynical part of me is not, I'm not surprised. But the idea that for some of them are just like, oh, we had a crime committed on that street and we need to see, you know, what the footage is. How did they get the okay for this? How did Amazon think this was okay? And the irony of this, Raji, too, I noticed is that on Prime Day, right, which was, I think, yeah, right. last couple of days, 12th and 13th, yeah. uh, these ring doorbells were on sale big time uh, during Prime Day. Mm -hmm. So you just know that a whole bunch more people bought them and is, are probably installing them. Yeah. And Simi, some people won't even be bothered by this story because they're going to go, oh, well, the police probably took those videos because or requested them from Amazon and Amazon handed them over because uh, they needed to. They're doing something in my best interest. And and some people feel that way even about CCTV Yeah, but they should cameras. ask you. But they should ask you. Yeah. If it's on your private property, if it belongs to you, if it's your home, they, you. they yeah. should at least ask ask you. And you might want to hand it over. Great. That's absolutely up to you. But you should be asked first. Absolutely. Yes. When it comes to privacy, you should be asked. Yes. I cannot agree with that more. Okay. So when you hear the story then, Raji, does it make you still inclined to perhaps have one of these? Because for me, it reinforced the decision to not. Yeah. So my parents, I said, have always had one and I have not. And I have wanted one. Um, it it makes me think I should still get one, but never with this company. Ah, you think a different brand, a different company perhaps will not behave like this? Yeah, well, my husband's a bit of a tech wizard, so he could he could probably MacGyver something else MacGyver for us too. Something. I love that. So maybe yeah, that's a thing. You just know now this is going to be a marketing thing, right? Some company will come out and say, well, we would never do that to you, so you should buy our product instead. Uh, it is just yeah, such a what's what's unfortunate is that people have to ask themselves yeah. that that if they're putting up video at their house, they have to wonder, oh, it, will it just be my video or will this video go somewhere else without my permission? That's bonkers. It is bonkers. So nobody reads the terms of service. Read the terms of service. Let's see what's actually in there. Uh, Raji, thank you for that. Thanks, Simi. So Raji Sohal there talking about this story out of the U.S., which, yes, I did find shocking, too. And that is Amazon admitting that their Ring doorbell camera footage that in at least 11 cases was handed over to law enforcement without the permission of the homeowner. Didn't even tell the homeowner whose Ring camera that was. And they handed the footage over to law enforcement. Now, would you be okay with that? Or do you think, uh, no, this makes me think twice about having one of these? Email me, Simi at CKNW. This is Mornings with Simi. Yes, don't forget, we still have some Eagles tickets to give away this morning. Keep listening for your chance to win. All you have to do is finish the lyrics to the Eagles song that we are going to play for you. And your chance, that cue to call is coming up. So keep listening to Mornings with Simi. 
Right now, though, we're going to have to try to answer this question. Why did Canada return six turbines for a pipeline that carries natural gas to Europe from Russia? The turbines were being serviced here in Canada. But you think, wouldn't sanctions and support for Ukraine prevent us from returning them? The Trudeau government has been heavily criticized for going ahead with that delivery. That was also heavily criticized publicly by Ukrainian President Zelensky. So what's going on here? Joining us now to talk about this is Amanda Conley, Global News National Online Journalist. Good morning, Amanda. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being here to explain this to us, because why is this such a huge concern? Why did Canada do this? Yeah, so it's certainly not every day that we're talking about kind of a diplomatic uh, spat here sparked over turbines, but that's kind of exactly what we're looking at. And so what we're, we're seeing here, as you mentioned there, is Canada has granted a sanctions exemption for Siemens Canada, the manufacturing firm, to return six turbines from their being serviced in Montreal to Germany. Germany is going to hand those right over to Gazprom, which is a Russian-majority-owned stakeholder in the Nord Stream 1 pipeline. As you mentioned there... Nord Stream 1 carries a massive amount of fuel from Russia into Europe. And Europe right now is really under an energy crunch. The point that a lot of people right now are calling it a crisis as they prepare to try and stock up for winter fuel reserves. And so that really is the context here that we're seeing. And that is part of the explanation that we were hearing from Prime Minister Justin Trudeau for why Canada is granting that exemption. It's about trying to keep NATO allies united in this attempt by Russia to divide them over the sanctions. Right. Was Canada facing a lot of pressure from Germany on this? Yeah, absolutely. We know that this has been a topic of pretty intense conversation between Canada and Germany for a couple of months now. Um, Again, all of that coming as Germany has really ramped up their messaging around facing an energy crisis. This is uh, saying that this is an energy attack effectively by Russia on Germany. Now, for context, Germany, as early as the start of this year, got roughly half of their supply of natural gas from this Nord Stream 1 pipeline coming from Russia. That's now down to roughly about a third of their natural gas supply, but still a really significant and critical part of that national supply of gas. And so Germany has certainly acknowledged they're, they're calling this, uh, it was uh, in, in, in their words, quote, a grievous mistake to become so reliant on one country, on Russia, for something as critical as natural gas. Uh, the situation, though, right now, the reality is that they're kind of caught between a rock and a hard place as they try and diversify, but still are reliant on that fuel. Okay, so Canada did this, and I know it even kind of put the Prime Minister on the defensive yesterday, didn't it? It absolutely did. He was facing a number of questions about this, uh, a lot of them coming kind of as a a result of that really fierce Ukrainian criticism. Zelensky, as you were saying, had criticized the government, saying that we were giving into concessions on the sanctions by Russia, that this was going to be, uh, that we would see more of this from Russia once they knew that they could get a, a concession on this particular issue. It would kind of embolden them to keep doing this. And so the question right now really is, and what we were hearing from Trudeau is that we, we don't know what's going to happen next at the moment. This Nord Stream 1 pipeline uh, has been uh, kind of uh, tapering off by about 40% over recent weeks. Uh, it is now entirely shut down. On Monday, the gas flow through that pipeline stopped, and that's due to scheduled maintenance. Now, it's supposed to only last for 10 days. No one knows right now, though, if that's the case. And we spoke with the German ambassador to Canada yesterday here at Global News. She acknowledged uh, that they, there, there is no guarantee right now that by supplying the turbines back from Canada to Germany and onward to Russia, that that pipeline is going to be reopened. What she was saying, though, is that they are effectively trying to take away excuses from Russia, from the Kremlin, that it could use 
to justify a continued shutdown in that gas, effectively saying if Russia chooses to keep that pipeline shut down after these 10 days are up, they don't have the excuse at hand of the turbines. I mean, they, they, will, they will know it's a political attack. Right. But that doesn't really help Canada in the short term, does it, when you had President Zelensky making such pointed comments about Canada, which up until now has, has been seen as a pretty big supporter? Yeah, absolutely. And Trudeau was saying, you know, this is, this is a very difficult decision for the government. Uh, we, we did see, and I think this is very interesting, an, an unusual statement of support from the U.S. Department of State following Canada's decision here. That's not typically uh, something that we would normally expect to see. But in this case, likely because of that really heated comment from Ukraine, we are seeing the State Department coming out in support of Canada, uh, saying that they are grateful that this will allow NATO allies and Western partners to remain united to keep the uh, effectively, uh, you know, keeping the population support among the European people for the really tough sanctions and the economic impacts that those are going to have on European populations. saying, you know, Europe, Germany needs to be able to have enough gas to shore up its supplies to make sure that the political support is there for the really tougher economic and heavy hitting sanctions and the really increased spending as well. It's important to note on defense that that country and more European countries are doing right now. It's about keeping that political buy-in. But of course, the diplomatic uh, sparks are certainly flying here over the frustration over what that kind of a tactical victory for Russia will be. All right, Amanda, thank you for explaining it to us this morning. Thank you. Appreciate that. Amanda Conley is a Global News national online journalist. She's written an extensive piece on this. You can find it at globalnews.ca. And essentially, it explains all the background. Why is Canada's turbine return to Russia's Gazprom fueling all of these sparks? And here's what we know. She's written about that. And you can check it out at globalnews.ca. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, everyone has been talking this week about that picture, that amazing full-color picture from deep space captured by the $10 billion James Webb Space Telescope. Now, NASA released that picture from a project that has been worked on by both the Canadian and the American space agencies. We wanted this morning to talk more about it, find out how significant is this picture and what we're seeing in it. And the James Webb Telescope, how big of a deal is that? Well, joining us now is Lisa Dang, who's a doctoral researcher at McGill University. Lisa, thank you so much for being with us. Hi, thank you so much for having me today. How impressed were you by that that picture? I am completely mind blown by these pictures. So there's actually five pictures and each of them are as stunning as the other. Um, I think it's the first time that we have images that are so crisp, but that also um, we're seeing so many galaxies in these shapes for the first time. What did it take for us to get here, though? And I know McGill University was also part of the team that worked on this telescope. Yeah. So what it took was a lot of a lot of people working together. And like, as you said, this project has been uh, conceptualized since the late 80s. And so it's been almost 30 years in the making. Uh, But it also took a lot of collaboration. So like you said, this is a project from NASA, but the Canadian Space Agency had a major contribution to it, providing two instruments and also the European Space Space Agency. And so it's really um, the the sort of reunion of all of these uh, all of these bright minds from all over the world that made this possible. Okay, that must be amazing for somebody like you as well, doing your work there at McGill University, knowing that you're part of this this really kind of life changing revolutionary project. It is, it is, uh, and like especially. So I wasn't even born when when this telescope was was first conceptualized. Oh, and so Lisa, you're so young. That's- <laughs> Yeah, uh, but it feels amazing to be part of it and sort of continuing the legacy of the people who have been working on this for the past three decades. 
I saw the kind of before and after picture that was shown too, about what what it looked what the picture looked like before we use the James Webb telescope and after. What looking at the picture then? What can we yeah. see in there that you find so significant? Can you explain that to us? Yeah. So one of the pictures is sort of like you know it's a backdrop of of some black background, but a bunch of with a bunch of galaxies. But if you look carefully at these galaxies, they're all kind of like arc shaped. They're not like regular, I don't know, galaxies like you would imagine. And what happens is basically there is some kind of galaxies in the middle that is in between us and all of these galaxies that are further away. And it's sort of acting like a magnifying lens uh, to these galaxies. And so this is why they're all sort of distorted is like, it's, there's some natural lens in, in space that we're looking through and is making this. And so it's sort of like physics and, and Einstein prediction and action that you see in a picture. I can tell you're very excited about this too, right? So, so what kind of um, reverberations will this have then? Does this change what people's research is? Does this change the direction of people's research? I think this is absolutely going to change uh, people's research and, and the direction of people's research. So the field that I'm part of uh, is studying the climate of other worlds, the climate of planets that are outside of the solar system. And for so long, we've never had a telescope that was designed to do specifically this. Um, and the Canadian contribution, the contributed instrument to this telescope is going to be, uh, it was designed to do exactly this. So for the first time, we're going to be able to detect molecules on the atmosphere of other planets, uh, what winds, what temperature there is, and kind of like have a picture of what it's like to live outside of Earth, uh, which is really exciting. Lisa, your work sounds so amazing. How do you do that? How do you figure out what the climate is on planets that we can barely see? Yeah, so basically what what we how we do this is not necessarily with these pictures. These pictures are stunning themselves, uh, but the James Webb Space Telescope is also what we call a spectrograph. So what we get is kind of like a rainbow in the infrared color. And then in the shape of this rainbow, uh, this is going to tell us what is hidden in the atmosphere. So it's a little bit more complicated uh, than, than possibly uh, than right. we can explain in five minutes, but essentially there out of these pictures, we get kind of like a barcode of what is contained in in these atmosphere. And so, yeah. Well, you do a good soon. job of explaining that, though, because I can understand that. Barcode, definitely, I, that's very visual. Uh, did yes. we increase our knowledge in terms of the number of galaxies out there? Like, were there way more than we thought there were? Yeah, so basically there are way more than we thought there were, but we're also seeing like very, very old galaxies, which is, the, which is what we're seeing for the first time now. At at this moment, it's very difficult to, to figure out what we're going to learn and what we're going to discover, um, because basically we're looking at a Rosetta Stone, and then uh, it'll take a couple of months of analysis and figuring out what this data is telling us to figure out um, what we'll learn. But just like the Hubble Space Telescope a couple of decades ago, all of the discoveries were not predicted before, and so I'm sure we'll find things that we were not expecting. I've also heard the James Webb Telescope be referred to as a time machine. Uh, because of when these pictures were taken. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So this is, a, a again, it's a little bit complicated. So when you turn on the light in the room, it kind of feels like you're, the, the light is turning on immediately. But actually, it takes like a split second. There's some speed at which the light takes to go from the light bulb to your eyes. And this is the same thing that is happening in space. And so the further something is, basically, the, the more time it's going to take for that light from this object to come to us. And so essentially, the things, if we're finding something that is super far, we're essentially looking at what it looked like back in the days. And so this is why the James Webb Space Telescope is a, is a time machine is because we're able to see these galaxies that are so, so far, but that means that we're also seeing them how they were billions of years ago, which is kind of crazy if you think about it. 
Yeah, I was just trying to think about it while you were explaining it. And yes, it's almost like a Back to the Future 2 thing. You're trying to figure that out in your mind. So how old are those pictures? So how how old are those pictures? Those pictures were taken last month, but basically um, the light that we see in these pictures can go back to up to 13 billion years ago, which is very, very close to when the universe started. Um, And so, yeah. That's amazing. It's almost so close to seeing the actual Big Bang. Exactly. It's almost like like seeing very close to the actual Big Bang. What we're seeing is basically a couple of years after that, uh, but we're getting sort of like information about a, a space in time that we didn't have before. This is so cool. Okay, so what are the next steps here, Lisa? What do you want? To, what do you hope happens next? So what I hope happened next. So now, all, so some of these images are already released. Um, and I think today or tomorrow, there's going to be a picture of Jupiter as well. And so it really completes all of the areas uh, of space that, that you can imagine. But what I'm really hoping is essentially understanding the climate of distant world. So I want to know what it's like, you know, are we going to find a habitable planet? If we do, what information do we have about it? Uh, what is it like? What do other worlds look like? Um, and kind of project myself out there. So So cool. Lisa, thank you so much for explaining it to us this morning. Yeah, of course. Thank you for having me. And I know we're going to be talking to you again. Love it. Lisa Dang is a doctoral researcher at McGill University uh, discussing the amazing James Webb Telescope. That $10 million telescope was a partnership between the Canadian and American space agencies and McGill University, also part of the team that helped to develop that. Uh, Boy, and those pictures have been amazing to look at this week. I look forward to seeing these Jupiter ones too. This is Mornings with Simi. Are you worried about the financial news lately, particularly in the last 24 hours with the Bank of Canada hiking their prime lending rate to 2.5% means that many Canadians now wonder, well, which one of my payments are going to go up or more than one of them going to go up? So how can we ease our minds about this? What should we be doing? Rob Carrick joins us now, personal finance columnist for The Globe and Mail, who's been writing about this. Good morning, Rob. Good morning. You must be getting a lot of questions and, and people asking you for advice on this these days. Yeah, you know, this. we are in a completely different paradigm than where we were 12 months ago. The summer of 2021 was so great. You know, house prices were rising, interest rates were low, inflation was there, but it wasn't that big a deal. Stocks were going up, everything was all good, and it's all going to hell now. <laughs> I'll bet. So what are the most common questions that you get from people right now? Well, people want to know... What, when the Bank of Canada moves, moved, it increased rates by a full percentage point yesterday, and that is a lot. The most since the ni- early, uh, I think the later 1990s. Spectacular. Most people have never, who are in the financial world have, uh, can barely recall a, an interest rate like, increase like this. So they want to know what it means. What rates will go up? How does this affect me? Um, I was just five minutes ago answering a question from a reader who wanted to know why GIC rates weren't going up when the Bank of Canada rate went up so much yesterday. And I explained that, um, that um, GICs are more connected to what's happening in the bond market than what the uh, Bank of Canada is doing. Um, so GICs rates uh, have been going up a lot. They're very attractive right now, but they mm-hmm. haven't been affected by the bank. What has? Variable rate mortgages, home equity lines of credit, floating rate loans. Um, that's floating rate debt. When, uh, basically, it means whenever the Bank of Canada changes rates up or down, these rates adjust as well. Um, Credit card rates, unaffected. They're a whole different world that aren't affected by anything that the Bank of Canada does. Right. But it sounds like those, the big payments that we make every month in terms of our mortgages and lines of credit, that's what could be affected here. And do you think that finally we're going to see some movement on those variable interest rates? 
Yeah, I think they they banks uh, yesterday were already already raising them to uh, to correspond to uh, what the Bank of Canada did. So if you got a variable rate mortgage, there's two kinds. One, the payments do whatever the uh, reflect whatever the Bank of Canada is doing, so the payments are going up. The other kind's a bit different, and these are fairly popular. The payments stay the same, but in the background, the bank is saying, "Okay, your interest rate went up, so we're going to put more of your payment against interest and less against principal, which means you're paying off your house slower than you thought you were." Right. So what advice do you give to people, Rob, then, who, come, who say to you, I need some help with this, I don't know what to do? You got to, I think, you know, the best thing we can do right now is pay down our debts where possible. I understand there are households that are up against it and with inflation uh, uh, causing gasoline and food to cost so much more, they don't have any room to pay down debt. They're just trying to, uh, they're just trying to get by. Um, if you have any wherewithal at all, and I know there's a lot of households are sitting on a little bit of cash they managed to save in the pandemic. A lot of that cash is still sitting in savings accounts. The best thing you can do with it is not take a big trip anywhere, not splurge on a new deck for your backyard if you haven't already done that. Pay down your debt. Pick the highest interest rate debt you have and knock it down. Bless you owe, the less interest you pay and the less vulnerable you are to what the Bank of Canada is doing. And another another point I'm making now is a lot of people are spending money now. There's, there is a post pandemic, post peak of the pandemic spending boom going on. And they're out there bidding the price of stuff up. I mean, cars are more expensive than they ever have been. Uh, travel is very expensive. I think people you know, maybe people could just ratchet down their spending just a little bit. It would help with, uh, it would help contain inflation. It would help uh, keep their finances in order. Celebrate this great summer we're having. The pandemic is still there, but it's in the background a bit. Enjoy yourself. You deserve it. But maybe you could just tone the spending down just a little bit. Boy, that's a different message for Canadians, isn't it? I feel like so many people have gotten a bit hooked on that free and not free, but easy access to money. You are totally right about that. Um, you know, borrowing to finance your lifestyle or borrowing to invest. A lot of people bought second properties or they uh, borrowed to buy stocks in 2021. And it was all good because interest rates were so low. It was almost, you know, it was almost hard to refute the logic of borrowing to spend or invest. But that logic has been turned on its back and it's expensive to borrow that. It was cheap to borrow 12 months ago. Now it's getting very expensive. Um, you know, if you're in your 20s and 30s, you've never seen rates this high. And uh, even people, even Gen Xers and Boomers are going to have to use their uh, their memories to go back to when, you know, interest mortgage rates were in the five range. And uh, I just checked in a home equity line of credit could be costing you about 5.7% today. That is no longer cheap money. No, it is not. I know lots for us to think about. Rob, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Glad to do it. Take care. Rob Carrick, a personal finance columnist for The Globe and Mail. Uh, yeah, getting lots of questions these days because people are wondering, well, wait a minute, what should I be doing here? Which one of my payments is going to be impacted by what's happening with the Bank of Canada? And also, I think the Bank of Canada has pretty much signaled to people this is not the end. If that inflation rate does not come down the next time it is announced by Statistics Canada, they will be considering their next big steps that they are going to take. So how is this impacting you? Are you seeing your payment go up? for your mortgage. Maybe you had a variable interest rate on there. This is Mornings with Simi. There's a lot of West Coast First Nations art out there for sale around the world, right? Tourists love it. Collectors like it. Problem is, not all of it is actually authentic Indigenous art. For more on this, we're joined now by our Raji Silhal. Good morning, Raji. 
Hey, Simi, yeah, this is a problem in like kitsch cultural items, but also, and this is more alarming, it targets fine art. So ripping off specific individual indigenous artists and millions and millions of dollars of this so-called artwork that claims to be First Nations, especially from the West Coast, is circulating around the world. And it's not by our local indigenous artists. And some are close to accurate for the originals, but a lot of these knockoffs are embarrassingly bad fakes and they're giving First Nations art a bad name. So imagine, you know, we know the the trees of the West Coast really well that get used in, for example, Salish uh, mask carvings. But ripoffs from places like Indonesia are using mahogany to produce their copycat version. So they're using a, a kind of wood that is totally foreign to the type of mask that would get produced here. And dream catchers have been found to come out of China. Uh, they're using plastic materials, in some cases, is a synthetic feathers and there are copyright laws that protect artists from being ripped off uh, in Canada but they're very soft laws and what's worse is they're hard to enforce unless you have a sharp and expensive legal team which many people do not have so when a first nations artist say uh, from from uh, Haida Gwaii for example uh, will have a very distinct look to their work and we have so much solid iconography in Indigenous art as well. But when a company overseas, a huge manufacturer is ripping them off, the artist here is at a loss about what to do. Because how do you take on one of these uh, importer, exporter, massive tourism manufacturers overseas? It would be a costly uphill battle might not pan out for that individual artist. I talked to Senator Patricia Bovee. She's worked as a curator at the national level, but also in Victoria. And she's the first art historian to sit in the Senate in Canada. And she's made it her life's work to reform copyright law to go after these fake Indigenous artworks. There are a number of places in the world that know that people are interested in in, in did Canadian Indigenous art. So they fabricate work that looks like Canadian Indigenous art using all the wrong materials and using images and family crests that have absolutely no meaning to the person who's making those fake works and are being used in the wrong context, thereby appropriating ideas and histories and family histories of, of our artists. It's annoying to me that vendors are selling this, this fake material, not knowing it's fake, that people are buying it, not knowing it's fake. And as far as the artists are concerned, they're among, you know, sort of the arts and culture in Canada are the third largest employer. And working creators, working artists living below the poverty line make up the greatest percentage of workers living below the poverty line. And I can tell you that Indigenous artists are among the poorest on, on average, right? And they don't have, they don't know until they see the work or somebody tells them that their work is being forged. They don't have the means to hire the lawyers to get the retribution. So they're losing the income of selling their own work because it's being plagiarized and sold by others. Uh, we have audiences that don't know the difference. So I think we have an education issue to do. We need to find a way that artists can have the support to go after the legal opportunities that are there. We have mahogany totem poles being made in Bali. And as you know, mahogany trees 
don't grow in Canada. So that's a pretty simple one. In Eastern Europe, we have people making masks, West Coast masks, out wow. of styrofoam. And we have people, in, uh, some from China, making um, argillite images out of, out, of, out of plastics. And we have people making dream catchers out of, out of plastics. Oh, boy. Okay, so then, Raji, what steps are being taken here? Like, is there a way to make sure that what you're buying is authentic? It's not so clear cut, Simi. Like it's really, it's really a complicated issue because sometimes the vendors, for example, they don't want to sell fake goods, but they themselves don't have the education or the background to know what to look for. And they think, oh, well, my, uh, my customers tend to like these products, so I'm just going to get them and they don't look into it. So I think that the vendor has a great responsibility. I think Patricia Bovie is right to challenge the federal government to toughen the copyright law to prevent these fakes from being made and sold. But I think also uh, there's something here about teaching people in general te- so that the tourists themselves know uh, about Indigenous art so they don't go for the fakes in the first place. So what people could do is if they are interested in purchasing um, Indigenous art, they could question the person they're buying it from and say, where is this? Who does it represent? How did you attain it? Is the artist uh, aware it's being sold here? And try to do your own detective work to find out. But what I found really upsetting about this uh, or concerning about this story was that some of the artists in turn feel so powerless that they will stop marketing their work online because that's one of the ways that people overseas get to see their motifs, their style, and then copy it. So they're, they're stopping the marketing of their work, which then also means other people don't get to learn about their work and find out what's available from them authentically. And this industry is not going to go away, the industry of fakes and knockoffs. So we see knockoffs across the board, you know, the popular example of designer handbags, for example, that's a booming industry overseas. But what's different about this is that it involves Indigenous people's culture, their history, their families, their family crests. And it's that, the exploitation of that, the appropriation of their culture, uh, that is, is a bummer. Oh, it really is. All right, Raji, thank you. Thanks, Simi. It's our Raji Sohal there talking about counterfeits and knockoffs of Indigenous art. And you know what the thing is, it's probably targeted a lot at tourists too, who don't know all the different the nuances and what to look for and what questions that they should be asking. So that is a tough one there. Fun away and Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. There are problems at BC Housing, so much so that late last Friday, and I mean dinner time last Friday, it was announced that the BC Housing Board of Commissioners was going to get a bit of a house cleaning. And this came after an external review pointing out some significant issues and the need for more oversight. So what has been going on there? Well, joining us now for more on this is the person who made the decision on that, David Eby, Minister of Housing for the province. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. Okay, so what led you to make that decision? Well, I'll take a step back. Uh, When I took over as housing minister, um, one of the files on my desk was uh, trying to get public release of the terms around the Little Mountain housing deal, uh, where the developer got a multi-hundred million dollar loan at no interest uh, to purchase that site, and the low-income community was bulldozed, and it sat empty for years. And um, when I looked at that, uh, I wasn't confident uh, in terms of our own administration, and I wanted to be, that we wouldn't be in that position again, that, that there were sufficient controls in place and that there were processes in place to prevent that from happening again. And so we brought in Ernst & Young uh, to do a review of internal processes at BC Housing. 
they produced a very lengthy report with about 100 recommendations. And the dominant theme of the report was uh, this is a, an organization that under the previous government was relatively small and, uh, and entrepreneurial and, and trying to find housing uh, where it could. Uh, but our government has funded it now with uh, literally billions of dollars to construct housing across the province. And they need to upgrade their internal processes and controls to catch up. It's a lot like a small startup that suddenly has a, a billion-dollar valuation. They need to catch up with their internal processes to make sure that the controls are in place to reflect what they're doing today as opposed to what they were before. Right. But the people you replaced were not put there by the previous BC Liberal government. They were put there by the previous housing minister, which is Selena Robinson, who sits at the cabinet table with you. That's right. And and Selena's staff was uh, key in implementing the uh, Ernst & Young work and working with them uh, through her office. So she's been part of this all the way along. And so uh, the the board um, that we had, you know, I've heard uh, suggestions in the media that they were fired and so on, which really carries the suggestion that they were involved in some kind of wrongdoing. I, I just want to clarify the record. That's not the case. You know, government has, uh, we received this report as a serious report, provides some very serious recommendations of, uh, that require some very heavy lifting. And so we've changed direction with the board to put people on who have expertise in that area specifically. So we have, you know, former Office of the Auditor General folks, uh, senior public servants who have retired, uh, who are willing to take this on. Uh, because it's going to be a very significant project, and and quite frankly, the time and commitment and and uh, and the background that's required for this uh, uh, matches up very nicely with uh, with their skill set, and it's no reflection on the outgoing board. Right, but as you know, we are so cynical and skeptical sometimes, especially when something is announced so late on a Friday. So, what was up with the timing of this? Well, it's, I mean, uh, I'll, I'll be frank. I mean, this is miserable news. I mean, it's not happy news when we have to change over board members and we have to um, uh, uh, change direction like this uh, on a file. Um, the, the challenge is uh, that uh, these were uh, volunteers from the community um, uh, who came in uh, and assisted government in good faith. Uh, and we had to change direction and, and switch them out for different board members. So it's not happy news, but uh, but the suggestion too, I, I mean, I've heard that this is done quietly and so on. I mean, we, we issued press releases about the, the Ernst & Young report. Uh, it wasn't covered, um, uh, barely covered, frankly. Uh, and, uh, and, and I'm, you know, I'm, <laughs> I guess I'm a little bit surprised by the level of coverage around the change on the board, uh, given how little interest there was in the report when we released it. But it's important to clarify why we're headed in this direction. Okay, so what do you want this next board to be on top of then? What do you want to see changed at BC Housing to make sure they are now tackling? Well, it's all laid out in excruciating detail in the Ernst & Young report. That will be the work plan for the new board uh, to make sure that BC Housing's internal processes are no longer, you know, Excel spreadsheets and uh, and handwritten uh, records of decision. And instead, uh, that they have uh, the systems and processes in place. So just to give you a couple examples of what they're doing now that they didn't do before, they're running a bank that's worth hundreds of millions of dollars providing loans to developers to construct uh, more affordable rental housing. Uh, they've got about 6,000 plus, just shy of 7,000 units of housing under construction across the province right now. They're they're probably the biggest developer in uh, North America, certainly in Canada, uh, by number of units. Uh, and so uh, we need to make sure they have those uh, those systems in place, and also they have partnerships with uh, uh, dozens and dozens of nonprofits across the province, and uh, they need to have the backbone uh, infrastructure to be able to work with those nonprofits, ensure uh, regular check-ins and accountability. They have some of that, but 
there's an opportunity for them to really bump it up a level, and they need to do that given the amount of public dollars that are involved here. Yeah, were you concerned that that wasn't always happening, particularly in the last couple of years? Well, I'd, as I said, I was profoundly concerned by the Little Mountain file, um, and uh, I've been working with BC Housing, and they've identified opportunities uh, to uh, improve their oversight of nonprofit organizations that they've been implementing on their own initiative. Uh, and uh, the ENY external review was to make sure that, uh, to bring in fresh eyes, really, to have a look at the operations to make sure that both taxpayer dollars are protected and that BC Housing is working as efficiently as possible at delivering what we're asking them to do, which is huge. Uh, you know, we have a target of 114,000 units of housing. We're at about 36,000. These are massive and significant public investments in housing in, in the middle of a crisis. And so making sure we're working as efficiently as possible and, and uh, doing it with the protection of the public front of mind uh, is, uh, is my priority. Well, thank you for explaining it to us. Before I let you go, how's the thinking coming along on the big decision? <laughs> Thanks. I guess I don't need to ask you what the big decision is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, I've received a lot of good feedback from, uh, from colleagues, friends and family. I understand the party is going to be uh, announcing uh, the rules of the leadership contest uh, potentially as soon as this weekend and early next week. So once those rules are out, I'm sure I'll have more to say, Simeon, and hopefully I can come back. Yeah, I expect to have you back to make an announcement. Thanks very much for that. Thanks for having me. All right, it's David Eby, uh, the Minister for Housing, talking about the big changes at BC Housing, uh, particularly in the last week or so. Up next for us... This is Mornings with Simi. You've been hearing in the news this morning that Hockey Canada is reopening the investigation into sexual assault allegations from 2018. A story which has caused so much controversy about how they handled it the first time around that it's led to pretty much a crisis within the organization. Now, to bring us up to date on everything that's going on, joining us now is Ian Mendez, senior writer at The Athletic. Ian, thanks for being here. Hey, listen, thanks for having me on for such a, such an important uh, conversation. Oh, this is a huge, huge story. We've talked about it a lot over the last couple of weeks. How significant is this development today, do you think? Uh, this is very significant. And I think what you have to remember is they already did their own independent third-party investigation. And I think what's important to note, the difference in what you saw today they are now making it mandatory for the players to participate. And I think that was what was really disappointing about the previous iteration of the investigation was there was nothing to compel the players. They, it was voluntary. And I'm, I'm sorry, but um, that was just not good enough. So this is an important step. Um, I think the cynic in me is, uh, is always thinking that, uh, you know, would this have happened if all these major sponsors hadn't pulled out in recent weeks? Would all this have happened if... Um, uh, uh, you know, the, a parliamentary, we weren't on the precipice of another round of parliamentary hearings later this month. That's always the cynic in me. But the, the optimist in me is hoping that some of the changes that are going to come from this are going to lead to better uh, days within the hockey community because clearly what happened in 2018 uh, is unacceptable. And it's also, I think, when you talk to a lot of women who are involved in hockey and have been around hockey, uh, this is the tip of the iceberg. This was not an aberration. This is not an isolated incident. There, there's an issue here, and, and, and yeah. we have to start addressing this on many levels in, in hockey. Have they committed, though, to making this new report public when the time comes? No. I, see, now, and this is where I think it's really fascinating, because just before I came on with you, I went back and I reread the statement to see, uh, did they promise that this would be yeah. transparent? And I, I don't get that sense. Me like I, I really don't. And what I'm hoping, though, is you've got to remember, uh, there's going to be another round of parliamentary uh, hearings. I think it's July 26th and 27th. 
here in Ottawa. And I think what's important to note is I think Parliament is demanding transparency and accountability. Because remember, as much as Hockey Canada is this juggernaut with corporate sponsors like, uh, you know, uh, you know, the Tim Hortons and the, and the Scotiabanks and the, and the big corporations, they're a government entity. And, and when you're a government entity, um, regardless of the size that you might be, you're going to be beholden to certain things. So I think the hope is that if they don't make it uh, transparent, that it's going to be compelled at some point down the road. And I, and I think what's really important, too, is this time in, in, the, uh, in the release, they said that there's the potential to ban people who are involved in that from all Hockey Canada events in the future, meaning Olympics, World Championships, any other tournaments that Hockey Canada participates in. We huh. may never see them again. I thought that was really important, but no, I did not see any promise of uh, exactly. transparency. Yeah, so this involves members of the country's 2018 World Junior Team, some of whom now are playing in the NHL. Remarkably, though, Ian, everyone seems to say they didn't know anything about it and they weren't there. And, and you know what? And I think what I think is really important here is there needs to be, and, and, and Hockey Canada says, look, moving forward, every player who comes through our program will now have mandatory uh, sexual assault training. I think there needs to be bystander training wrapped into that because clearly yes. there is a culture of silence here and young men don't feel empowered to speak up against their teammates. It, just, it's a, it, go, it runs counter to hockey culture. But that's what's really upsetting is that even the so look listen there was there was at least we think eight people involved in this incident and and a number of them played for that world junior team well that means that there's at least 10 15 players that weren't involved in this how come we haven't heard them speak out how come we haven't heard them yeah. uh, say that this is disappointing that's what's really upsetting like we need to empower young men to speak up and speak out about these types of actions because right now that environment does not exist within the hockey world. So this was significant today for Hockey Canada to say this, but do you get any sense, Ian, then from your coverage and reporting on this, that anything has changed in terms of Hockey Canada's attitude? Do they realize that they are in a crisis situation? I think they do. And again, I'll go back to that comment that I made at the beginning, and it's very cynical of me to say this. I think it came because of the financial pressures that were put onto them by the Scotiabanks and the Tim Hortons and the, you know, the, the, the number of the big-time sponsors who said, hey, hold on here. Um, we're not signing up for this. And, and that's the part, when you read that letter today, it is very convincing. Like, you, you would read that open letter to Canadians and say, wow, this is an organization that really gets it. And, and I understand that. But the time for talk is done. The time for, you know, rhetoric is done. Uh, to action. I want to see some concrete, tangible things. And unfortunately, this is going to take 5, 10, 15 years to really truly see uh, the, 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 the fruits of this. But uh, boy, it's, again, the whole thing is disappointing because you'd like to think. Um, I think what the problem is, there was a young woman who was traumatized in London yeah. uh, four years ago. Yeah. Nobody stood up for her. Not one person in the hockey world stood up for her. And that's what's really disappointing. Oh, that is so, so true on that. Ian, listen, uh, one more quick question. What is the timeline for this report? Do we know when it might be finished? No, it didn't seem like there was a timeline. But again, I'm going to go back to that July 26th, 27th um, parliamentary uh, hearings here in Ottawa. That's key. Concurrent to all of this, the National Hockey League is running its own independent investigation, which I think is interesting because what the NHL has said is if any of the players that were involved in that are now NHL players, there's the possibility for um, yeah. sanctions from the NHL. So there are multiple investigations going on here. I don't know about it. Gary Bettman spoke to us at the draft in Montreal last week. It didn't feel like there was 
anything imminent. I, I'd like to think that before October we would get something, but again, you don't want to rush the wheels of justice or you want to make sure that they do this thoroughly and properly, but uh, there are multiple kind of investigations going on simultaneously. All right, so interesting. Ian, thanks for your time. Yeah, thank you.